Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Now, here's your host, James Landry. Welcome to the Palace Perspective, the podcast that brings you conversations and professional analysis on the topics and trends affecting your everyday financial life. I'm your host, James Landry, and I'm glad you chose to listen in today. Well, this topic may not actually be everyone's everyday life, but it certainly impacts a lot of families we work with on a regular basis. Today, we will cover how to deal with the issues and concerns around concentrated stock positions. Now, we're going to be breaking this subject up into two parts because there's a lot to talk about here. Now, over the past two months, we have attended several client meetings where the focus of the conversation was dealing with the risk-reward considerations of the client's single security concentration. As is nearly always the case, the clients intuitively understood the risks inherent with their current investment strategy, but for various reasons found it difficult to do anything about it. I've asked Mark Bogard, Chief Investment Officer of Palace Capital Advisors, to join us once again as we visit this topic. We like diversification from a economic investment theory uh, point of view. So we like to have multiple bets going for clients across many different securities. And Charlie Evangelakos, our CFO and partner at PCA, concentrated stock position holders, feel like they can predict the market, they can predict the stock. And we all know that's, that's almost virtually impossible. Mark and Charlie, welcome back. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Glad to be here. So Mark and Charlie, let's get right into it. Mark, if you would, give us the vantage point of a chief investment officer. You work with a lot of clients directly, and from time to time, clients will be holding on to a highly concentrated position. First, what does that mean or look like, and what are the issues around it? Well, a concentrated position is one stock or one position that makes up a very material part of a client's uh, net worth. And why that can be an issue is we like diversification from a economic investment theory uh, point of view. So we like to have multiple bets going for clients across many different securities to have, we have to have the best chance of the um, financial plan coming to fruition. For our investment results to come through, we want to have that diversified set of bets. But we have one big position it's a very idiosyncratic risk. You've got that one big bet on that one stock and it may or may not come to fruition. So, you know, why would that be a risk? Well, think about, you know, just what happened 18 months ago with the pandemic. You had, uh, say, gyms as an example. If you owned a gym through no fault of your own, your gym got shut down. And if you have all your net worth tied to gyms, you could have some liquidity issues based on that. Or think about public stocks through time that have had scandals or what have you, that through no fault of the employee that owns a big position, the stock could take a a very massive hit, and then you're in a tough situation. So those are the type of things that we want to try and work on for clients and try and diversify over time. So Mark, you mentioned that you said a material position, and then you also said big position. I assume big is relative to individuals. What do you mean by material? Is there a way to sort of put some numbers around what is a material position? Well, certainly, yes. And I did mean uh, material big as a percentage of your current net worth. So the absolute number actually doesn't matter as much as the percentage matters. So it's big for you if it's a big percentage of your uh, current net worth. And so we've seen things range from 
20% of net worth up to 90% of net worth. And depending on what that position is, also then dictates how quickly we may want to diversify away from that. So the more focused the position is on say one industry or one, you know, think about a biotech, maybe that, Hey, this could be a home run, or maybe it's already been a home run, which made uh, for great returns for that client, but maybe there's going to be a new drug that, that leapfrogs it down the road. So that's something that you'd want to think about diversifying pretty quickly. But maybe if, you know, hypothetically owned client owned a lot of Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway as a security is diversified through many industries. So owning more of Berkshire Hathaway is less of a risk than owning a very concentrated percentage in say a biotech. So it somewhat depends, but if I had to put numbers on it, you know, from 20 to up to 90% is, is there are things that we get concerned about. Sure. And so, I mean, everyone's a little bit unique and has a different uh, background comes to us. What are, I mean, as you see it, what are some more common reasons that people have these concentrated positions? What's been your experience? Well, the experience has been, you know, from a high level, clients have been able to concentrate that wealth by being, you know, experts in whatever um, industry that they're in. It may be a public uh, company CEO that has been an, an expert in, you know, whatever the field may be, and they've driven their company, grown it in an appropriate way and grown it from a relatively small public company to a big public company. And so now it's a big part of their net worth. And we see a lot of that with clients. Another big area is private companies. So that a particular client grows their private business and it may get taken over by a bigger public company. And now they've they've created the wealth through the private business, but now they have public equity that is now more liquid than their private stake before. But again, gets back to that. They most likely need to diversify that position to get into something else. So those those are the two big, and we also have seen inherited positions as well. So from either the, maybe already a, an employee at a public company to building a private enterprise that then gets taken over by a public company to then maybe inherited positions. We see we, it runs the gamut actually. And I guess if you're an employee of the publicly held company and, and perhaps you've gotten stock options and so forth, you may not have a lot of stock in the company or you may, but the fact that you're also employed by that company is just another way of sort of you know, in, you know, concentration, right? Oh, it absolutely is. I don't know if I, I think all of us on this podcast can remember Enron years ago where there were plenty of employees that, that made uh, a nice living in their stock options off that company and they were employed by the company, but then the senior management actually perpetuated a, a fraud and then all the employees lost everything, their job and their 401ks and their investments. So it was really a, a sad story, but you do as a, as a client need to think about both my investment portfolio and my income stream. And you want to think about diversification amongst both of those. And that's a great point, James. Yeah. So Charlie, if I could switch it to you here, I mean, so Mark's just talked a little bit about some of the, you know, risks that are inherent with a concentrated position. Seems to me that if someone was really concerned about these risks, they would, you know, want to act quickly to diversify. But in, in my experience, our experience, Clients don't necessarily want to do that. So what are some of the reasons why individuals hold on to these concentrated positions? Hey, James. Well, first, well, first, glad to be here. I think most clients perceive that they will attain a better result if they hold on to the stock. It's almost like you mentioned like a sugar high. The stock continues to perform well and their net worth continues to grow exponentially. So I think that's one reason. But I think other reasons why clients may not sell the stock is first and foremost is tax reasons, right? You sell a stock, you have a very low cost basis, there's a tax due. 
you know, capital gains, federal, state, et cetera, is, is one of the major reasons. I think a lot of clients has have a fear of missing out on the opportunity because you know the old expression, uh, concentration to get rich and diversification to stay rich. It's, you know, there are a lot of people that have amassed a great amount of wealth by holding concentrated stock positions. So it's not all dire. There are many, there are many clients or people out there that have benefited from, from holding single stock positions. And other are just emotional attachments. You know, you work for a company for all these years, you're comfortable with it, you know the company, you know the uh, industry, and there's a level of comfort. And, you know, and it's interesting that a lot, of, a lot of concentrated stock position holders feel like they, have, they can predict the market, they can predict the stock, and we all know that's, that's almost virtually impossible. But those are some of the main reasons that, you know, we see reasons why people continue to hold. Yeah, and in the line of emotional reasons, from time to time, we'll have individuals that inherited the stock from, you know, mom or dad. And maybe dad said, hey, this stock was good to me. It was a blue chip stock, never sell it. And so <clears throat> that may not make a lot of empirical sense as, you know, modern day investment manager looks at the stock, but it's an emotional tie into the stock. And it's hard to get clients to see, you know, the science, the, the numbers around the, that decision-making. Another reason might be we deal with a number of, I'll call them C-suite executives, right? They, they have some issues around trading the stock, you know, from an optics standpoint, they're very concerned about the nature that every trade they do in the company stock is public. And so what will an executive selling shares of the stock, what message does that convey to Wall Street? And how could that impact the price of the stock if the wrong message is conveyed? Yeah, no, I agree, James. Um, to your point is there are also executives out there that, that don't have the ability to sell the stock, right? They're CEOs or uh, C-suite executives, and you know it's all public information. And obviously, there's a there's a public uh, perception of an executive selling a stock, so they, they hold on for a lot of different reasons. So those those are all critical or important considerations when when, when you're diversifying. You know, we look at it as a firm, as you know, because uh, we're all first of all going back to what you were saying. We're all old enough. We saw Kodak, we saw Bear Stearns. These were great, you know, companies back in the day, right? That don't exist any longer. But the decision to hold the to hold the stock, uh, you know, there are a lot of factors, right? What if we see clients? If it's a very small percentage of their net worth, we typically will recommend, hey, you know, we can hold the stock. Is it? It all comes down to financial independence. And if a client, if it jeopardizes a client's financial picture, as Mark re- referred to earlier, well. That, that's a sort of a signal whether you should be thinking about diversifying the stock. Or- so let me just go through a few of the strategies that an investor may be considering when deciding whether or not to diversify out of a concentrated stock position. And some of these strategies may be appropriate for most people, but some of them may be only appropriate for certain types of individuals. But the first one, which I believe is the default strategy for most people, is just do nothing. So Maybe, Charlie, if you could tell me a little bit what's, or both of you really, what's sort of the thinking in an individual's mind around just doing nothing? I think there are a lot of clients, James, that are out there that hold the stock until they die, get a step up in cost basis, and then pass it on to their heirs, children, grandchildren. I think that's a mentality for a lot of people. About this. That would be one reason for do nothing. But then you have to contend with estate taxes, and you also have to think about potentially tax law changes with this, with the Biden administration, with the uh, eliminating the step up in cost basis of death. But that's, we don't know that yet, but that's, I would say that's probably the major. And if I could follow on from that, Charlie, too, if a client takes that view, one hand, they're very focused on the tax implications, which can be material, right? But another piece of that is the return piece of what is that stock going to return? And if over a longer period of time, maybe yes, that stock in the past has performed quite well, 
if the client is banking on the stock performing that same way over the next 10, 15, 20 years, that gets back to the same discussion Charlie was mentioning earlier of there's been plenty of companies that were great, but then went away via Kmart, Kodak, Bear Stearns. There's a whole laundry list of them that the client runs a risk of trying to save on that step up in basis, yet the returns could, could fade away. And that can argue for trying to diversify that uh, position sooner than later, just to work that risk down and have a nice diversified portfolio for clients. Yeah, if I could add, if I could add, Mark as well. I mean, you'd also have to take a look at the quality of the stock. I mean, if a client owns Amazon or Apple, you're obviously a lot more comfortable with that versus a small cap, mid cap stock that's got a lot of volatility and a big range of outcomes. And the other other factor would be what percentage of of the person's net worth does this stock represent? And if it's a smaller percentage, then the client can afford to take the risk, you know, over the long term. So there's a lot of factors that are involved, you know, whether to do nothing or not. Well, the next step up from doing nothing is just, you know, plain old selling the shares. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, selling frees up funds that can be used to purchase other securities that would diversify a portfolio. And of course, you know, the issue with selling the shares is you're going to owe capital gains taxes uh, on the, any appreciation over the client's cost basis. So, but in selling the shares, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing decision, right? I mean, I suppose a client could sell over time. What other strategies, if you're going to sell shares, would you employ? What, what about a stop loss type of uh, strategy on the Yes, those are certainly, you know, there's different ways to sell securities, which is essentially the question that you're, you're getting at. You can choose to sell today, come up with a dollar cost average plan over time where I'm just going to sell you know, over the next five years, I'll sell 20% of my holdings each over the next five years. You can figure out whatever would be appropriate for that client, right? In terms of their plan, do they want to buy a vacation home? What are they, what are, what are the, what's their plan? And then you could work the security sale into that plan. In addition, you could layer more uh, sophisticated strategies on top of that, which could be a stop loss that I want, you know, I've made X, I want to make sure I at least have X minus 20%. So I'm, I'll put in a stop loss and sell if, if the stock falls by 20%. You can put collars around it. You can do different types of strategies to preserve uh, that wealth. Mark, there's another type of individual that we work with on a pretty regular basis here at Palace, and that it would be someone who's an executive at a publicly traded company. And those executives at publicly traded companies have to be concerned about uh, when they're selling their company shares or frankly buying their company shares, could there be allegations that they have access to any insider knowledge about the company's stock? So this is knowledge that the, the rest of the general public doesn't have access to. And so therefore they're able to trade at an advantage buying or selling. So tell me about a plan that those types of executives or insider employees can adopt to help I guess, in some way, defend against any allegations that their trades were made to take advantage of insider knowledge. Well, yes. Well, there is a plan called the 10B5-1 plan that executives can file that lays out ahead of time their plan for selling shares. And that protects them from that insider trading rule that because it's already documented, the plans uh, written down and registered with the SEC And so everyone is aware, publicly aware of what the executive's plan is. And so it protects the executive. And actually, from my experience in public markets, actually, I really like having those plans because then you know, you know, every CEO, not every CEO, most CEOs may need to take some chips off the table, shares off the table at some point. They have family needs, right? And so it makes perfect sense for an executive to sell some shares at some point. 
but also as a public investor, you don't want to see the, the CEO sell all their shares, right? Because then that certainly signals there could be something wrong with the company. And so if an executive signs up for the 10B51, then me as a, the public investor is, okay, I know they're selling shares. I can ask the CEO about that. I can get comfort around the reasons around it. And it's just going to come out consistently through time. And that's the, the best I can hope for from a public investor. And that also gives, uh, as I should say, the CEO coverage in this case from any insider trading rules. So it's a great, it's a great plan. Okay. If Thanks. I could add to that, Mark, the nice thing about it, you can also set a, a bottom price on that. So if the, if the shares don't reach a certain price level, then they won't be sold automatically. Fair enough. Yeah. Let's talk about, I'd say, a much less known strategy for diversifying a concentrated stock position, guys. And, you know, people get this confused all the time with something called an exchange traded fund, an ETF. Those are pretty common in people's portfolios. But let's talk about something that's not at all related to that. And that's an exchange fund. Charlie, you ever heard of an exchange fund for diversifying a concentrated position? As a matter of fact, I have, James. What does that look like? Well, it, it, for, for, for holders of concentrated stock positions, think of a company like Eaton Vance, the 800-pound gorilla in the space. They set up a fund, and they will accept individual stock holdings. So uh, a holder, an owner of a concentrated stock position can exchange his shares for shares of a fund that holds you know, several stocks, you know, 20, 30, 40 stocks, and allows them to exchange it on a tax-free basis and in return, get a pool of individual stocks. And that's, a, that's a, a method of diversification. Ah, okay. So they set up a fund and it's typically structured as a partnership. And so I exchange my concentrated stock and receive back units of a partnership that you know a company has created that has a bunch of other concentrated stock holders exchange their stock in. So now we're all partners together, right? Right. Think of a bunch of people with concentrated stock positions becoming partners throwing all the money into a, into a pool of stocks and they each get back a share of the pool. Oh, okay. And they, and they can do that uh, without generating a tax event upon that exchange. Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Is there, so how, how long do, do, do funds have to be in that pool in order for this to pass muster from the IRS? Yeah, typically the hold is around seven years. If you decide to pull your shares out, obviously you, you pull them back and you don't get the benefit of the, of the tax deferral. Yeah. After the seven years, after the expiration, what you'll receive back is a, a pro rata share of the pool based on the amount of shares that you contributed. So you get back a bunch of stock stocks that are highly appreciated. So it's a form of a form of diversification. Okay. So diversification, it's not tax avoidance or it's just tax deferral, but while you're deferring, you're getting a diversified pool. So that sounds actually pretty neat. Yes, it uh, does. Yep. Yeah. Uh, not not too many people will do that. I imagine the seven-year lockup is probably a little bit of a stumbling block for a lot of folks. I would agree, yes. But again, if you're one of those people who want to hold it until death and to get a step up in cost basis, this might be a good option for you. Yeah, and I have to imagine that if a company, you know, a company that puts a, together a fund like that, there's going to be some embedded costs in that structure that may have to be considered by an investor. Yeah, it's just like any other fund. There's a fee associated with it, whether it's 1%, 1.25%. There'll be a fee for the person that's you know put the fund together and manages the fund. Okay. And there's also a selection process. They, they may not accept your fund. They like to, ah. they typically like to have the fund to be highly diversified. They, they want to have multiple different sectors, so it's properly diversified. So you, know, you, you submit your, your stock, and they'll either say yes or no, we'll accept the stock. So it's not, an, it's not automatic that they'll accept your stock. 
Well, that makes sense because you know, if you have 20 different investors all contributing XYZ stock, there's, there's just no yeah, diversification. There's there. no diversification or if they're all in the same sector, right? Right. You know, all energy companies throwing into the pool, then obviously you have, you have you know, sector risk, obviously. Let's talk about a couple other strategies before we're done here. There's another way that an investor can, quote unquote, diversify his or her concentrated stock position. And that's by monetizing the position. What I mean by that is financing or using the, the position itself to provide financing that I could, I could use to go out and you know, invest in a diversified or more diversified portfolio. What, what does that look like in, in today's investment? Well, the, there's a couple of ways to, to think about that. And the, the client can take out, say, a line of credit to get a gift, additional cash or maybe use margin to also to get additional cash. Either way, the client's essentially taking a loan out and with interest rates so low today, that's relatively affordable. Uh, interest rates are very low. You could take then those proceeds from either the line of credit or the margin and invest it in a nice diversified set of securities, whatever fits your risk tolerance across you know, stocks, bonds, privates, et cetera. And you can essentially you know, use that leverage, buy more securities, and then get that return as long as the return on your securities is above what you're borrowing you know, that's certainly net positive for the client. And, and that is one way to go to earn more return and diversify. The, the negative to that strategy is you are taking leverage. So, you know, again, a pandemic happens like 18 months ago, you may get a margin call or that line of credit may get called back and you've got all these other investments out there as well. So there is some risk, uh, some tail risk to the downside. But if a client is willing to take a higher risk profile, they can get higher returns by being able to borrow and invest that cash into a nice diversified set of security. Charlie, I'm going to end it with you if I could. And thank you, Mark. That was interesting. I'm going to end it with you, Charlie, because I know you've worked with a lot of clients in the, the realm of philanthropy. And so another way that an investor or another thing an investor can use to diversify a position is look at that concentrated and highly appreciated position as a great way to donate to charity. So you want to talk to us a little bit briefly here, and we can just kind of touch on this and go into more detail next time. What are some choices that an investor who has philanthropic intent to diversify that concentrated stock position? James, you know, we've done a lot of work in this area and concentrated stock positions are a wonderful way to give to charity. Um, first and foremost, the easiest way is just to donate a highly appreciated stock directly to a charity of the, of the choice, right? So the once the charity receives those dollars, they could sell the stock and pay, you know, essentially don't, because a charitable organization, don't pay capital gains or any taxes on that. So, and then you would also be a given a tax deduction, obviously with limitations, but you, you can deduct. So you get the best of both worlds. You get, you get a tax deduction on your tax return and you get the ability to give the full value of the stock to charity that they can benefit from. So. That's the easiest and most efficient way. But again, then it gets into the donor advised funds. There are, foundations, the other ways that you could set up your own donor advice funder foundation. And that's a topic for another day. Those are, and then you could fund it with, with, with highly appreciated stock and dollar for dollar, you can sell it inside your donor advice fund or your charity and get the full benefit of it. I mean, that's another way to do it. And other ways, if you get a little more creative, you could do things like charitable remainder trust, where you can, and you can set up a trust, you can transfer the stock into the trust, defer the gain. And then that trust can give you a lifetime income. And at the end of your life, then the money would go into the, to a charity, your foundation, or your donor advice fund. So a lot of neat ways on a, from a philanthropic point of view to use, to use, you know, highly appreciated. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to, I guess, just point out, and it almost goes without saying, but someone who's donating highly appreciated concentrated stock positions to charity, whether it be a donor advised fund, whether it be a private foundation, whether it be directly to charity, has to have philanthropic goals and intent. Because if I'm nervous about losing value of the stock, and that's all I'm nervous about, then what do I care about giving it to charity? So first and foremost, I have to have philanthropic intent. But if I do, and I'm concerned about the risk of concentration, I don't want to have to pay a capital gains tax upon selling. I have philanthropic intent. And in some cases, I even am looking for an income stream from the stock that I can't attain because maybe there's no dividend in the stock and it's concentrated in a stock position. Those strategies, charitable remainder trust you mentioned, gifting to a donor advised fund, even a charitable lead trust, which is almost in some ways the opposite of a charitable remainder trust, all those should be on the table for investors to explore with their financial advisor team and see if those might be good strategies that would work well in their situation. Absolutely no question. Well, that, guys, thank you very much. That's going to do it for this round. And, and listeners, if, if you've been listening to this point, you may be thinking, well, they didn't even talk about hedging the concentrated position with the use of options, puts and calls, so to speak. Well, you'd be right. We didn't have time for that today, but rest assured, we will cover that in some detail in part two. Thanks so much, Mark and Charlie. Listeners, you can find more information about these topics on our website under the Insights section called Planning Commentary. And as always, if you would like to discuss your personal financial planning, reach out to us through our website, palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S capitaladvisors.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk with you again soon. Mark, Charlie, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. You, James. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You should consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based on publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only, is not personalized investment advice, and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor.